You know, sometimes awkward things can happen at weddings. And I'm sure some of you are already thinking of some awkward wedding experiences that you've seen. For Heather and I, our wedding ceremony was nearly perfect to a T. And everybody said so until the ending of the reception. Everyone was enjoying their food and a little dancing, and we still had not gotten to the fun part of the playlist that we had spent so much time on together. Well, we never got to that fun playlist. Family members started to make a little bit more space for people by packing up a few of the tables around the edge of the reception. It was just packing up to make some space. But well, guests noticed and thought that it was time to help pack up and leave. We were still planning to be around for at least another hour, enjoying our time with everyone. But due to the awkward misunderstanding about the tables, we found ourselves being rushed out the door a little early and leaving baggage at the church. Now, that wasn't as fun as the time I attended a wedding where everyone in attendance got food poisoning. Food had been prepared for the reception the day before, and instructions were given to family to let the food cool. But they failed to detail how to someone who wasn't an experienced cook. Well, uh... We all dug into some amazing pulled beef at the reception, and it tasted wonderful. But it had been left out to cool at room temperature on the kitchen counter all night. The perfect breeding ground for bacteria. The beef got its revenge on everyone from the bride and the groom to the distant cousins. It's a fun story to reflect on with all those friends and family. Weddings are times that we want uh, to be memorable for a long time, but sometimes they can run into awkward snags. No matter how much planning you do, things just go wrong. Uh, today we're going to look at John 2, 1 through 12, at the story of the wedding in Cana. And we'll see Jesus at the start of his ministry run into an awkward and unplanned wedding moment. It's in the midst of that mundane, awkward, everyday event that we will see Jesus reveal a glimpse of his glory. Today, the Gospel of John will show us that Jesus, the God of the universe, steps into the ordinary, into the awkward, into the average things of our lives and reveals the weight of his glory. Let's look now at that average and ordinary and awkward moment that the Lord of glory revealed himself in at this wedding. Let's look at uh, verse 1 of chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out... The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So the scene is set at Cana uh, at a wedding, and there is Jesus, his mother Mary, and the disciples. Now because Mary, Jesus, and the disciples were all there, it would seem 
we could give our best guess that the wedding was either for a relative or for a close family friend. Now, scholars suggest that if this was so, Mary culturally would have had some type of responsibility for making sure that the food and the wine was all ready to go. She's maybe the aunt that was assigned to help get the reception organized. That is at least what seems to be hinted at here. Now, wedding festivities at that time in Israel typically lasted for an entire week. Now, if you can imagine planning one wedding day and all the stress that goes into that, try planning three to seven days' worth of events. Typically, the groom was the one financially responsible for the wedding. Unlike our culture today, which traditionally puts the burden on the bride's family. If the wedding ran out of supplies at any point in the set course of days that it was planned for, it could culturally bring shame upon the bridegroom, upon the husband. Failing to deliver for this multi-day celebration could even suggest to the family and those in attendance that he wouldn't be able to take care of her as his wife. So not something you want to have happen. And so we can understand why Mary's a little bit concerned. It would seem she is looking out for the interests of a family member or a beloved friend. So where does she turn now that the supplies have run out? Trying to get some help, she turns to her son, Jesus But what was she expecting? A miracle? Maybe. But from what we're told, it would seem this is the first time he's performed one in his earthly life. It hasn't happened before. She certainly knows that her son is significant, that he's the Messiah. After all, we're told when the angel told her the news of her pregnancy, she responded by storing up those things in her heart. And even, and we even see her in Luke compose what we call Mary's Magnificat, a song of praise and rejoicing that the Lord has chosen her for her special role and for all that she knows that her son's going to do in the future. She knows that he is very significant. She knows that he's the Messiah. But she has yet to see him do a miracle. Now, Jesus is... 30 years old at this point. He's an adult. Strange to think that I'm older than him now. And we haven't heard about Joseph since Jesus was a child. If Joseph had passed away, Mary was left a widow. That would have left Jesus as the primary provider for his family, providing for his mother and his siblings through the carpentry work that he learned from Joseph. And gosh, what a resourceful son to rely on. One who's always ready to help with anything you want and always does it to the best of his abilities. You could depend on that son to meet every family need that came up. But as we have already seen As we've gone through the Gospel of John, a shift is taking place in the life of Jesus. 
and we will see his relationship with his family start to change a little bit. The time has come for him to begin his ministry, and his father's will, his heavenly father's will, is now being actively pursued and put into into motion. It is taking priority over everything now. Something it would take his family and his followers some time to understand. But Mary, it would seem, used to relying on this son of hers, does what a widow in that time would do, and she turns to him knowing that he has only been resourceful and reliable and helpful in the past, looking for help to amend this awkward wedding situation. Verse 4 tells us, And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, unfortunately, the way this is phrased in English sounds a lot harsher than it actually is in the Greek language. Jesus uses a Semitic idiom, an idiom of Israel, of his culture, um, and idioms, if you ever stop and think about them, rarely ever translate into another language correctly. Um, If you think about saying our English idiom, you're pushing my buttons to someone in Spanish or Chinese, they'll look at you and tell you, what are you talking about? What buttons? Or if you say, you're the apple of my eye, they'll ask you, why does your eye have an apple? And why are you saying I'm the apple? An idiom is a phrase that is unique or, uh, yeah, it's unique to your culture and often doesn't translate well. The same is going on here with the idiom, te imoi kai soi. Or if we give it a, a very wooden, literal English translation, it would be, what to me and to you? What to me and to you? Our idiom about pushing buttons means, if we take the wooden, literal translation away from it and give it more of the idea that we're talking about, it means, you're annoying me. You're pushing my buttons. You're making me angry. Well, this idiom, what to me and to you, essentially means, this is your thing. What does it have to do with me? This is your thing. What does it have to do with me? It's not a harsh statement. But it's a measured and blunt correction. It's measured and blunt correction. Now, um, similar, similarly, the phrase woman shouldn't be understood as harsh or disrespectful. It's yet another place where the English doesn't ju- do justice to the original idea. It is courteous. It's not rude. But it's not sentimental either. He's not calling him mom. Perhaps in English, ma'am or lady would work. But those are so uncommon that if uh, we heard that in English, it would sound sarcastic. So it's really hard when translating these verses into English to get them to the point where it sounds smooth and understandable in our language, but at the same time not harsh. So stepping back from all this, He's being blunt, he's being respectful and polite, but he is giving his mother a measured rebuke here. But why? 
throughout the book of John, we'll see that the people around Jesus, his followers and his family, come to him with everyday, normal, and mundane problems. But Jesus looks at the situation in front of him, this average thing that's going on, and he sees how these things symbolize the mission that his heavenly father has sent him on. He sees how these things symbolize the mission that his heavenly father has sent him on. And while he doesn't ignore their request, he's not going to do that to Mary. He tries to make it very clear that he has a bigger agenda in mind. He has a bigger plan in mind that he's focusing on. Following his father's will, not serving human agendas. And we'll see even here, it's not that he is uninterested in helping with these mundane, awkward situations in life, but he wants to highlight that his father's will comes first, not man's. As the Messiah in his father's timing, at the right hour, he would reveal himself as the bridegroom, the groom of his church. Now, in Scripture, a wedding is used to symbolize our salvation, being brought into a covenant relationship, into union, a joining in close relationship. In chapter, uh, in the next chapter, chapter 3, Jesus will be compared to a bridegroom in this regard. He will one day return for his bride, we're told, who is his church, the union of Christ and his church will be celebrated with a great banquet, a great wedding celebration, which is often connected with the, Christ, with the time of Christ's millennial reign. This is a time when he will be the one to provide his people with abundance and food, uh, and, food and wine. Now, if you look at Zephaniah, the time... Uh, The time will be so prosperous that Zephaniah describes the land of Israel with the imagery of mountains dripping with sweet wine and hills flowing with milk. So here's the connection. There's this average, ordinary time where Jesus is being asked to provide for the bridegroom. (laughs) It's all right. It happens. I understand. So... um, Yeah, so let's take a step back, look at the wedding and what's going on here. We have the situation where the bridegroom has run out of what he needs to provide for his bride. Wine in abundance. And Jesus is looking at this as a symbol of what he's supposed to do in the future. He's supposed to be the bridegroom of the church who will one day throw us a big wedding banquet that will be symbolized by this abundance of wine and milk and food, all the blessings that he's going to pour out on us in the millennial kingdom. And he's stepping back and saying, I want to make it clear, this isn't my time yet. It's not time for me to pour all that out. All right? He clears up that the timing of the plan in motion has nothing to do with the decisions of people or the circumstances around him, but on his father's will and decision alone. He will be the provider at the great banquet that celebrates our salvation, but he wants to make it clear it's not time yet. 
He actually says, my hour or time has not yet come. Now pay attention to that word here, the word hour or time, because John is foreshadowing what's going to come later on in the rest of the Gospel of John. He's whetting our appetites as we read, drawing us to think about what all this hour could be about. We'll see that term come up again and again and again in the Gospel of John, referring to the culmination of Christ's ministry, to his death on the cross, his resurrection, his exaltation, and his glorification. He's looking at all those events as the Lord, or as his Father's time, his hour that he set aside for him. Jesus is setting the record straight that uh, the time for those things, the time for him to be the great bridegroom of the wedding has not yet come. So Mary's received this gentle rebuke. We've had the wine run out. She seems to be worried. She's turning to her son. He sees deeper symbolism and he doesn't want to be misunderstood. So he gives her this gentle correction. And how does she respond? With simple trusting and enduring faith just look at the simplicity of what she says in verse 5 his mother said to the servants do whatever he tells you do whatever he tells you mary responds in enduring faith certainly (laughs) theirs was a complicated relationship 30 years of relating to her son as a mother, but now she is learning to relate to him in a new way as he sets out on his ministry as her Messiah. Certainly she knew uh, that was his role from the beginning, even if she didn't understand and couldn't control how it all played out. So how does she respond in this moment? With simple faith. And trusting that he knew what to do, and apparently knowing that he still cared about her everyday wedding situation. Verse 6 goes on. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. So Jesus points out these large jars of water that were there for Jewish purification rites at the wedding, each capable of holding something around 20 to 30 gallons each. So these big, big jars. And he instructs the servants to fill them up to the brim, then to bring them to the master of the feast. Now, this would have been the guy who is likely acting as the master of ceremonies as well as the the head waiter for the wedding reception. Now, this all seems a bit odd and mysterious. What is he doing? Why is he asking them to bring this water to the master of the feast? Let's see what happens. Verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, 
And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Water become wine. Jesus has not just performed some simple magic trick. He's altered the makeup of molecules themselves. And this is no ordinary wine. It's so good that the master of the feast goes to the bridegroom and uh, comments on the fact that he thinks the bridegroom's been holding back on the guests, holding back the good wine until now. In other words, this isn't just your average wine. He's provided the superior wine. John goes on in verse 11 to say, This is the first of his signs. We'll see six more in the Gospel of John. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. So what does this teach us about Jesus? His glory. Jesus has given his disciples a glimpse into who he is. A glimpse of his glory that he would one day reveal abundantly to them. In this first sign, we see a few glimpses into that glory. First, we see him as the bridegroom. We see him as the bridegroom, the one who will one day be united to his bride, the church. That's us. Providing for us all that we could ever want. The imagery of a banquet provided by the Messiah shows us that one day he will pour out abundance upon his people, providing more than we could ever want. Or the imagery of Zephaniah, the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk. He will provide. Secondly, the sign reveals to us his power. Reveals to us his power. Throughout John, we will see that Jesus is still fully God. He's still fully God and that he still has all his power and glory and other divine attributes. He never surrenders them or gives them up. But his attributes are veiled. They are veiled. And while he has a weak human nature, he still possesses his omnipotence, his all-powerful nature. While yet human, he still has power over every aspect of creation and nature. Nothing is beyond his power. Now, if this confuses you, it should. It should. The incarnation of the eternal Son of God, taking on flesh in the name Jesus, should always blow us away and should leave us in awe. How can he be a weak human and all-powerful God at the same time? Throughout its history, the church has tried to maintain a careful balance, a careful balance and mystery that the Bible teaches us about Jesus. Christians everywhere at all times have maintained that Scripture teaches that Jesus is fully God, fully man, but he's one person 
And his two natures are not separated into two people, but at the same time, they're not confused and mixed together. Beyond this, we accept and embrace mystery, the mystery of his incarnation with awe and worship. This is what scripture teaches us. Fully God, fully man, one person without separation or confusion. How that all works is supposed to be a mystery. Thirdly, this sign reveals that he is still the sovereign ruler over every part of creation. He is still the ruler over every part of creation. Not only does he have power over it, he rules it and can make any decision that he wants about it. He is not an elected official. He's not an elected official. He is king and lord of the universe. It is his to do with as he pleases. And yes, while evil and brokenness and decay still affect the world around us, they do not remove his sovereign rule. But this sign points us to the day when he will no longer tolerate those problems, when everything will be visibly brought under his rule as king once again. No more rebellion, no more decay. He will not do away with the created world. He won't do that, but he will renew and improve it, doing with it as he pleases, just as he does with this wine. He is in charge of the entire universe down to the smallest part of it. Fourth, this sign reveals his relationship to his father. It reveals his relationship to his father. And what is that exactly? He is here to do his father's will. And this is another simple yet deep point of great mystery. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now that's a challenging verse. Did Jesus surrender part of his godhood? Did he still have access to his power, his knowledge, his rule and glory? All those things that make him God. Folks, his death on the cross would be worthless if he lost any of those things when he became a man. So how did he empty himself? Paul says, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now in English, when we say that we empty something, it implies that you get rid of something. It implies that you lose something. But in Greek, in Greek, that's not the case. You could empty yourself by putting on something that's of less value. It would be like a king going out into his town market and not removing his crown or his royal garments, but keeping them on and putting on a beggar's robes over his kingly things. Emptying by adding something of lesser value. Paul continues on in Philippians 2 to say, 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Within the Trinity itself, all the members of the Godhead are co-equal, sharing the same power, the same glory, the same authority. But when it comes to their relationship to creation, both the Son and the Spiritly and the Spirit willingly submit themselves to the Father's will. In their relationship to creation, they willingly submit themselves to the Father's will to bring Him honor as they reveal the glory of the Son. So lastly, what does this passage teach us about Jesus? Lastly, this is what John explicitly tells us that the disciples caught a glimpse of. His glory. His glory. His unequaled beauty majesty, and power. All the wonder that makes him so unique and different from us. Now the word glory in scripture often carries the idea of having weight, of a person being so much more than others. And that is what the disciples are getting a glimpse of in this man at the wedding. A picture of how much more, how much better he is than anyone else. In Christ, the Father is revealing himself. And what is our response to be when we see the wonder of who Christ is? Verse 11 continues. And his disciples believed in him. After this, they went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there. For a few days. So what's the response to his glory? They believed. They believed when they saw his glory. They had faith in him. Here Christ was giving them a glimpse of himself as the glorious bridegroom who will one day establish his rule and provide all we need. It was not time for them to see his full glory, but they got a glimpse. They got a foretaste of what was to come. And they believed. Just like Mary, the disciples knew enough to believe him. They did not know everything. They did not comprehend it all. But with a glimpse of the glory of the bridegroom, they knew truly and believed simply. Now, it's interesting that John notes that his mother and brothers went with him and his disciples. Too often, we kind of interpret Jesus' correction of his family to mean um, that they didn't have faith in him. We assume that uh, Mary and the brothers didn't have faith in him. Yet, as we have seen in this passage, it's Jesus who is distancing himself to make it clear that that he's... uh, Pursuing his father's will, not his family's. That's what he pursues first and foremost. But while they didn't comprehend everything, they often misunderstood what was going on. They got us, we get small glimpses of his family's faith, such as Mary's response to the servants in this story. Now, from what scripture and other early church accounts tell us, his family remained faithful. They believed in him, served, 
and led in the church, even to the point of giving up their lives for his name. His brother James, who led the church in Jerusalem, who wrote the epistle of James, from what we're told from early accounts, was taken up to the roof of the temple and thrown off for believing in his brother. I believe I've even heard accounts of his great nephews being brought before judges and governors to give account for their faith. His family believed in him. We've seen the revelation of Christ's glory to his family and his disciples today, an insight into what will come. And we've seen the simple response of faith from his mother and his disciples. Now, this brings us to our application. Exercise a relentless, enduring, astonished faith in the glory of Christ, the bridegroom, the great bridegroom. Believe in the bridegroom. The disciples got a small glimpse of his glory through this sign. Whether or not we fully see or understand it, he is glorious. One day, a businessman had to travel to his small town meeting and invited his wife to come with him. She was excited about the trip uh, until she learned her husband was going to be flown to the the small town in a twin-engine Cessna plane. Am I saying that right, Cessna? I think so. Honey, I have decided not to go, she said. Why? Why not? I'm not going on a little bitty twin-engine Cessna, she said. Her husband smiled knowingly and said, Honey, your faith is too small. And she quipped, No, the plane is too small. The businessman really wanted his wife to go with him, so he canceled the Cessna and booked travel on a major airline. His wife went with him because, as she put it, her faith grew because the sign of the plane grew. The object of her faith, what she was believing in, determined how much faith she decided to have. Do we understand Christ's glory fully? No. But our faith should grow as we understand it more and more. As we see his glory and how amazing it is, our faith should increase. How do we put more faith, more belief in the bridegroom? How do we have deeper faith in his glory? You have to know the object of your faith more. There was a man um, one day whose wife was very ill. It was in the frontier days, and he had to get to a place that had medicine to save his wife's life. The only problem was that it was wintertime, and in order to get to the person with the medicine, he had to cross a lake. The lake had been iced over. His wife's life depended on it, so he had to get up and cross this cold lake that had now been covered with ice, and he was terrified. He was concerned that the ice would break, scared to death, but spurned by, on by the love of his wife. He got down on his hands and his knees and inched along ever so carefully. All of a sudden, he felt a rumbling 
on the ice. And he was even more terrified. Maybe the ice was cracking. The rumbling got louder. It became thunderous. The man was living in terror. But as the noise noise got closer, he looked up behind him and saw a man driving a team of horses across the ice. The horses pulled a carriage that was loaded with a bunch of boxes, and it just went thundering across the ice. All of a sudden, the man stood up, started walking, and then running. All of a sudden, this man that was full of fear became full of confidence. He learned something about the ice. He learned that if it could hold a team of horses thundering across it, it could certainly hold him. If you want to have deeper faith in God, then spend time with people who are riding with God with a team of horses. People who show you and remind you of how glorious he is. Read books by authors that help you better understand the weight of Christ's glory in Scripture. Let the faith of others increase your faith. And that's what John is doing here, isn't he? He's providing real accounts of people who caught a glimpse of the weightiness of Christ, of his glory. We weren't there to see these miraculous signs But we know so much more about his glory than his disciples and Mary did in this moment. But they still believed. Exercise a relentless, enduring, astonished faith in the glory of Christ, the bridegroom. Believe in the bridegroom. Today we've been challenged by the faith and belief the disciples and Mary as they caught a glimpse of the glory of Christ. Are you catching those glimpses of him? Put yourself around people, books, anything else that helps you to get a glimpse of his glory. As you see the weight of his glory more, let your faith grow deeper. Believe in the bridegroom. Let me pray. Lord, what a wonder it must have been to behold that first sign in such an ordinary and mundane situation to see your son so concerned with putting your will first but still seeking to serve and to love. Lord, I pray that we would just get a glimpse as we continue on through John into the glory of Christ that would overwhelm our hearts and our minds and that it would increase our faith, that we'd believe more in the bridegroom who will one day come back for us and will provide more than we could ever need. pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.